0: And I want you to take your Bible this morning and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. And uh, that's near the end of the Bible, so if you find Revelation, just turn left. It's in the section of General Epistles there. And today we're turning to hear God speak to us. And I want to ask you a quick question. What is it? Why is our faith, our Christian faith, so foreign, so strange to the culture that we live in? We live in a post-Christian culture in many ways, And many have not heard or don't understand our faith. But when you consider the faiths of the world, what is it that makes the Christian faith and our God so unique? Our worldview is quite different from the world's view of life and things that are going on. Would you agree? We should be living quite differently each and every day. And our faith is strange. The first reason that that's true is because of this book right here. The authority for your life and my life is different than the authority for people's lives around us. They don't understand how this book, which some think is antiquated, could still have relevance today. But it is. An eternal God has spoken, an eternal word, and it's relevant for everyone made in His image and in every culture, at every time, in every place. And so this authority is strange to a lot of people. The way of salvation, what you and I believe... The exclusivity of our faith that there's only one way to God. Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. And some people out there think that's strange that you and I would hold to that exclusivity. That there's only one path. But the reality is is that we realize that that's what God's word says. It doesn't matter what you and I believe. That's what Jesus said and God himself said. We also realize our destiny is different and our lives are different because of it. We've chosen a a, a narrow pathway. We don't take the wide, broad way. We, we've chosen the narrow gate, the narrow way. And that makes all the difference when we make that choice. And we know our ultimate destiny as well in and, and, and God's presence is quite different. And that we would even believe that there's another world after this. Some find that quite strange. But the reality is at the base of it, is the truth that our God is different and distinct. If you go study religion down there at the college, or if you study it on your own, what you know is that of all the world faiths that are out there, you can divide them into one of two camps or one of two categories. There are those who worship the one God and those that worship the many. If you believe in Hinduism or some New Age thought, you believe there are many gods and, and many ways. And, and people study and, 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 and believe that everybody can have their own God. And Then there's others who believe that there's just one God. Now, Islam believes that there's one God. His name is Allah. Judaism believes that there's one God, Jehovah. Christianity believes that there's one God. But we're distinct from those monotheists in this Our God is not just one essence, but He's three. He's many. He's three persons. And that faith and that different distinction of Christianity right there, in the nature of our God, that's what distinguishes us from all the other faiths that are out there. It's it's the difference between the one and the many because we affirm in some ways both. We've affirmed specifically that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three persons, though distinct from one another, all are one God. And that God, who is triune or trinity, is a personal God. He's not a force. He, he is a is three persons. And while the term Trinity is not found in the Bible, the truth of the Trinity is found all throughout. The doctrine of the Trinity and all the essential elements of it are found on different pages of Scripture and different experiences of God's people. And what it communicates to us is a mysterious character and nature of God. Something that's strange to the world around us. And for some it's so difficult, they say that it's contradictory, I'm not going to believe it. And so they reject it. But because it is God's self-revelation... It is His revelation from Scripture. We can't just jettison it. We have to believe it. We accept it. We don't reject it. And what it reveals to us is that God exists eternally in this state. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons. And yet, He is one in His essence. And not three in essence. Not three gods. We are not believing in tritheism. There's one God who exists as three persons. And those three exist in a way that they relate to one another. The Father, the Son, all distinct. Yet they all are fully God and they all are one. It's mysterious. To some it's paradoxical. To some it's contradictory. But to us it is truth. The unity of God is expressed in His essence of being, that He is one God. That's the great confession that Israel had to make. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. But He's not just one, He's also diverse in the sense of His persons, that there are three who eternally have always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now the implications for that are serious. Because, you see, God, the God that we are made in his image, made us to have relationships, even when they're messy. He made us to relate to one another. God didn't design us to be lone rangers and navigate life. We're made for relationships. And one of the most beautiful relationships that we can experience here on earth is a reflection of the triune God where three persons are one, he gives us the opportunity to be a part of a relationship between a man and his bride, where they leave and cleave and become one flesh, two persons. And it's a reflection, in some ways, of the Godhead, who are three in one. And you see, this is important because both in the marriage, the husband and the bride look to Jesus, who has eternally been the Son of God, as their head. And in some ways, the, the, the husband gets to be the example of Christ to his bride, but the bride looks to that example of Christ who eternally has been the Son. And in that hierarchy of the Godhead, though he's ontologically in his being the same as the Father, fully God, he has w- submitted himself in an eternal subordination where he's under the Father. It doesn't make him less God. He's fully God, but that's how they function. And it helps in marriage when the bride sees that and understands that. But the husband doesn't lord it over his bride because he has a head over him who is Christ. But this is all a reflection of who God is, which teaches us who we are and why it's critical to understand the Trinity and different elements of it. The Bible affirms God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are fully deity. And yet there are not three gods, there's only one. And here's the other thing. Those three gods, God has not appeared at different periods of time in different modes. He didn't appear in the Old Testament as merely the Father, and then as the Son, and then later come in the mode of the Spirit. Yeah, that's called modalism, and that's called heresy, and we reject that. God always has been Father, always has been Son, and always been Spirit. Three persons in one. And if you need to see and realize that modalism is a heresy, just look at the baptism of Christ as one example, where you have the Father speak from heaven, the Son is there in the water, and the Spirit descends like a dove. And in that moment, there can't be three modes, because God is present in three ways right there. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's why we reject that heresy. But the Trinity is not a contradiction just because God is not three in the same way that He is one. God is one in His essence. He's fully God, but He's also three in His person. Now the amazing thing is He relates in a loving relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what He wants is those made in His image. He wants us to relate to Him as well. Jesus even prayed for that in John chapter 17. That as he and the Father are one, so too you and I would be one with the Father. And that we would be one with another. And so the Trinity, it emphasizes the person, that God is personal, not a force. And it gives us insight into how we should relate to one another as well. If we are authentically the children of God. In fact, so that we can have fellowship with Him and relate to Him. Again, because God's not a force, we can actually talk to Him as a person. He's made it possible so that the Father that we appeal to in heaven, who's holy, has given us, listen, His Spirit dwells within us, who enables us to pray so we can communicate with Him and understand His Word because He guides us into all truth when He speaks to us. And we also, when we pray, have the Son who is at the right hand of the Father, who is the advocate for us, so we can pray to Him. So even as we commune with the Father in Heaven, all three parts, all three members of the Trinity, all three persons play a role in that communication with Him. And that's all possible because of the redemption that all three persons played a part in. Each distinct person. Person of the Trinity, each one played a distinct role in your salvation and my salvation. And this gives us great comfort when we truly understand it. We appreciate it because not only does it open a doorway for us to pray, but when we walk through trials and when we go through these things, we can know that all three persons of the Trinity have played a role in our salvation. And that role is significant for us to know how to navigate life when we're having trials and tribulations. And those are going to happen in life. That's what Peter writes about. He writes to a church that's going through hardship and he's speaking to them and he speaks to us about the great redemption that we have. So as we stand to hear God speak this morning and we hear about the work of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit who saved us, it causes us to worship him and know him more fully. And by the way, it impacts our daily living. Because I'm living my life in the eyes of the Father. I'm living my life in the power of the Spirit. Am I living my life in a way that gives honor and glory to the Son who came and died for me? It impacts all different aspects of our life when we fully understand the nature of our God and how strange it is to the world around us. So I want you to stand with me and honor the word of the Lord as we just read a few verses here. And we see the work that God has done in your life and my life so that we could be saved. Peter writes in verse 1. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, he writes, Notice this to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Father, may we experience that grace today. May your peace be multiplied in our hearts as we just stop and ponder for a moment the work of all three members of the Godhead to save us. The work that each one has done, will do, and and ultimately will complete, Father. May that give us peace and assurance as we navigate life, especially, Lord, as a world becomes increasingly hostile to our strange faith. Lord, may we, may we have a reason ready to defend what we believe and why we believe it. And even when they don't understand it, may we stand faithfully on your truth and not be ashamed of it. And Jesus, we'll give you all the glory and all the praise as you make yourself known to us and guide us and make us more like you. It's in Jesus' name, that we all pray, and all God's people say amen and amen. Peter is writing, and as he's writing to these believers, they are spread all throughout a region where he once ministered. In fact, we would call it southern Turkey today, that region just north of Syria. That's where Cappadocia and Galatia, Pontus and Asia and Bithynia are located. And Peter's writing to, to the people, to the believers that are there. When you go over to Acts chapter 2, if you write that in the margin of your Bible, you see there a sermon that Peter preached. And when you see those who were there, they were Jews who came to Jerusalem for the the festival, for the Feast of Pentecost. And and they probably had come for Passover as well and stayed. And so they had come to worship. And when they came to worship, they came from these different regions. In fact, when when the Then the fire fell upon the disciples and they began preaching the gospel in the different languages. All the men from these different regions heard the gospel in their language. And so these people then believed the gospel and then they went back to their home. And when they went back, they had this strange faith. They now were proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah. And they were proclaiming now that there was this strange understanding about the nature of their God. And later in the book of Acts, when you read, Peter went through this region and he ministered there to the churches were there. And so he's writing to them about their faith. And he's writing to them because their strange faith is causing them problems where they live. And it's not because of them, it's because the world doesn't embrace this strange faith. And he writes to them because they're, they're distressed by various trials. He says that down in verse 6 of chapter 1 over in chapter 2 he mentions in verse 10 and 11 that that because of the way that they've been saved their their faith no longer their faith is distinguished from their former manner of living and and no longer are they governed by their the foreign lusts of the flesh they've been saved from that and they live differently over in chapter 3, it mentions how even in a marriage there could be a believing or an unbelieving spouse and, and, and that there's a way that, that one might be reviled and you, you win that lost spouse by your good behavior by the way you live out and flesh out the faith. In fact, over in chapter 4, verse 4 and verse 14, it mentions those who malign believers and because you no longer run with them. You know, when you and I come to to, to be born again and have a new relationship with Christ, uh, be to be, be now born again to live in a different way, we live differently than we did before. And the world should see that distinction in your life, that there's something changed in your life and my life, and we don't live the same way. It, 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 If that's true, amen. Peter's writing to the church in those circumstances, and it's the same for you and me today. Our lives are to be different because we've been born again, and our our lives are made new. And and, and because of their faith, they seem to be strangers, to be aliens in the world. Now, I know that there's aliens, right, because you've all seen what's happened in Vegas and just Vegas itself is aliens, right? All right but that's another story. But, but I'm kidding. When he says aliens here, don't think of those, those heads that are shaped funky with those big glass eyes. When he says aliens are strangers, he means we are different than the world around us. Your life, my life should be different than our neighbors if, if, if they're not believers. Your faith should be different when you enter into the workplace. The way you conduct yourself, different from the non-believer. Because our faith is transforming our lives. It should seem strange to them, some of the decisions we make. Because of there's an authority now in our life that we live by. That guides us in our decisions. They were suffering for it. And by the way, I think you'll see that in our culture as well. As they become increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. That your faith and my faith is going to make us really distinct in this world. We should shine as lights. We should be salt in this earth. But they've been saved. Now, the amazing thing is Peter details that, listen, even though that's happening in your life, because of who God is and what He's done and the salvation that you and I have experienced now, that, that should give us an encouragement and a comfort and a motivation to live more earnestly for our God. And as he'll say later, to have a reason for the a defense, uh, an apologia is the Greek word he'll use, an apology to speak to the world. Listen, not, well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that offends you. No, 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 no. To say, this is my defense. This is my apology. This is why I believe what I believe. And it's based on the word of God. And to be ready to give that to the world around you. And church, we need to be more faithful to do that even today. Now, this is why it seems strange to them. We have been saved, not just by Jesus. I know we emphasize that a lot. Man, Jesus saved me. And did he? Amen. But do you realize the Father and the Spirit also played a role in that? All three persons in the Trinity play a part in your salvation and my salvation. Peter says, listen, church, you who are spread all over, you who are pilgrims, you who are strangers, by the way, this world's not our home, Amen? amen? Don't put your roots down here or hold on too tightly. If you hold on too tightly, listen, you'll love that stuff and you won't be willing to let go of it. Don't do that. Let go and let God have His way. Be a stranger. And when we live in this world, he says to them, listen, understand this. You are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In other words, your faith and my faith, when we were saved, before we were saved, long before that happened, God chose us. Wow. When did God chose us? Well, God chose us according to Ephesians chapter 1. He chose us before the foundation of the world. How did God choose how, does God, how did God choose us? Why did God choose us? He chose us because God knows all things. It says right here, we are chosen by God by foreknowledge, not foreordination. Look at this carefully. How does, what does that mean? What's the significance of that? You would agree with me, God knows all things. We've already studied that. God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows past, present, and future. In fact, in you over to the Old Testament, what does he say? Listen, if you're God and you think you know God, go ahead, lay it all out before me. Tell me the past, the present, and the future. Tell me all things. No one can do that. Only God can. God chose because He knows. God knows all things because to God, he doesn't discover something. Oh, well, look at this one picked me. Oh, look at this one chose me. Oh, look at this one. No, no, no. God knows everything. He knows everything in an eternally present moment. He sees and knows the beginning to the end. And before God even made the world, think about this for a moment. God chose you if you're saved. Before there was a sun, before there was a moon, before there were stars, before there was an earth, before there were trees, before there was flora, before there was fauna, before there was birds to fly through the air or fish to fly through the sea, before there were creeping things, whatever that means in the Old Testament, before there was any of that, God chose. You are elect. Now don't run from that and say, oh no, here we go. This is scary. You don't run from this, you run to it. That God who sees the beginning and the end of all things chose us. You don't run from it because it also says that Jesus was foreordained by God to be the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That God saw the sacrifice of his son before it even happened. He saw everything that would happen to bring about redemption. That brings assurance to my heart, particularly when I'm going through distresses, particularly when I'm going through trials, particularly when things aren't going exactly swimmingly for me. Why? My God knows. He knows it all. And He, listen, who began that good work is faithful to complete it. To know that he knows the beginning and the end. He's told us the beginning and the end in his word. We have the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we have the end, the book of Revelation. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And all those who have put their faith and trust in him and been redeemed will be there to enjoy it. God has known all of that. And he chose us before that even happened. Wow. That means, listen... He knows my beginning date and my end date for my tombstone. And he knows the dash in between. And he knows the day that I said, God, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. Save me from my sins. I want to be part of your family of faith. He knows that. We've been chosen according to his foreknowledge. And see, what's surprising, when you look in the Old Testament, you realize, you know, there was nothing about the father of faith that that said, oh yeah, you got to pick him, but God chose Abram. And said, oh, by the way, I'm going to make you Abraham, father of many nations, even if you don't have any son yet. But I'm going to do that. Wow, how are you going to do that? Oh, you see those stars? Go ahead and count them. Your seed's going to be more numerous than those stars. You see this sand on the sea? Your seed's going to be more numerous than that. I don't even have a son. I don't even have an heir. How's that going to happen? It's okay. I've already seen it. Oh, what an amazing God. And the father of faith, he didn't just choose him. Then he chose this nation, Israel, the apple of his eye. He he chose them. Even Abraham's descendant, Isaac, and then Jacob, and and Jacob's bride before. When Jacob and his brother were in his mama's belly just wrestling back and forth, God said, oh, by the way, the older is going to serve the younger. He saw all that. Why? Because he saw that one would forsake his birthright and not appreciate his birthright, who he was. And the right that he had. He sees everything. He knows everything. And this should give us reason to celebrate. Now when, when I say that means God has chosen us or elected us to salvation. I do not believe that means God elected some to not be saved. Why? Oh, because Peter says so. You see, because Peter says God's desire, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. God's desire is that none perish, but all come to repentance. What God wants is everyone made in His image who's going in the wrong direction. God wants all of us to turn around and repent and start walking towards Him. Not everybody will, but that's what God says His desire is. And that's the Word of God. In fact, Jesus Himself said hell wasn't made for man. Hell was made for the devil and his angels because they had made a decision, listen, in the throne room of God and had a revolt there. God doesn't want it didn't make his image to be in hell that's not what his, his desire was that his image would reflect his glory forever and ever but he won't force anyone to do that God ordains the means to be saved but also the ends to be saved and what God desires is that man choose him and we respond to his wooing to his call and whosoever will call in the name of the Lord shall be saved The sovereign God gives man responsibility and doesn't lose his sovereignty in the process. It's pretty amazing. But what you discover is when you choose God is you realize really there's none who seek God. There's none who turn aside after him. What you realize is I chose him but before I chose him he chose me. I mean it's baffling y'all. And if your system of salvation can so conveniently have everything in there that you have to cut out portions of that to fix to, to make it work, then that system isn't really worth working. No. It's a mystery. You'll never fully understand the nature of who God is. And have a bigger God who's sovereign and can still give man free will to choose Him and for them to realize after they've chosen Him, well, He chose me first. Pretty amazing. You say you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. No, I'm just speaking big, biblically. Because it's affirmed all throughout the pages of scripture. All those truths. But what I do is I have an assurance of this. It's in his hands. Praise God. And this I know. The God who began it is going to complete it. And this I know. He didn't force anyone to love him. But he shows them I've loved you. And I invite you to come to my kingdom. Now what's amazing is the father makes the selection he chooses us, and He chooses us that we would obey, to obey the gospel, that we would respond to the truth that He has demonstrated His love to us. And to make that happen, the Spirit plays a role. The Father chooses us, actually before there's a foundation in the, of the world in the past, but then the Spirit of God plays a role in the present. And here's what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God sets us apart. Notice it says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Oh, by the way, in case you wanted, I just. I dis- I just don't want to miss this out. Go over to Acts chapter 2 sometime and read Peter's sermon when he says that everything that happened about Jesus being crucified, being delivered up, being uh, placed in a tomb, being raised from the dead, all of that, God was sovereign over all of it. And after he preached that sermon, the men had to make a decision. They said, what do we do? He says, you've got to make a choice. Here's what you do. Repent. But he didn't force anyone to do that. They made a choice at that moment because they were cut. And that's what every man has to make a choice with the light that comes to them. What will I do with the light God has given me? Because I'm responsible for that light. The spirit plays a part in setting us apart. We are in sanctification of the Spirit set apart. That's what sanctification means. To be sanctified means you're set apart for a holy purpose. When you go over to the Old Testament and you read about the tabernacle or the temple and you see there God gave all these instructions to Moses and said, oh, by the way, make all these bronze lavers and make these gold cups and, and make these lampstands and then set them apart. They're not for common use. You don't use them out, out in the community and then bring it into the house of the Lord. No, it's set apart for For service to the Lord and and it's got a holy purpose. In the same way, the God who elected us and selected us has set us apart and drawn our boundaries by the Spirit of God. And what the Spirit of God does is we're set apart and he cooperates with the Father to do the work of redemption in your life and my life. How does he do that? Well, according to John 14 and John 16, the Spirit of God, his responsibility is to bear witness to the truth. He inspired the writers of the Old Testament. That's later in chapter 1, but specifically over in verse 10 and 11, when it mentions how the Spirit inspired the prophets to write the words that you and I read. But then later he says that the Spirit empowers those who preach the gospel. What does he do? He takes the word and he brings the word to you and to me. And then he takes that word and convicts us on the inside and says, By the way, you're convicted of sin. Not sins, plural, but sin specifically. And the sin specifically is this, we have not believed. That's over in John. That's the work, what John John 14, John 16, Jesus said, of the work of the Spirit. To convict the world of sin because they have not believed, righteousness that we don't possess, and judgment because the God of this world has been judged. That's what the Spirit is doing right now, working in people's lives. He may be working in your life this morning, and you may be realizing, you know what? I have not believed in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I'm convicted. I know I need to do that. I, I know Jesus has died on the cross and paid the penalty for my sin. those aren't the reason that we go to hell we go to hell because we reject the witness of the spirit that's the unpardonable sin we blaspheme the spirit and reject and say i will not receive that witness that's why a person goes to hell and the spirit of god is speaking convicting us of truth and then convincing us once we do believe this is the truth now here's the way to go walk in this And the Spirit sets us apart and sanctifies us so that we will hear the gospel and believe the gospel. And he says that down in verse 22 of chapter 1. And then he also applies that in our life. We are, as Paul would say to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses, uh, verses 13 and 14, God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth in which He called you by our gospel to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit is at work. That's His role right now as the one who comes alongside us and says, if you haven't believed, you need to believe this morning. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I plead with you, do it today. As it says over in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, the Spirit and the Bride both are saying, come. Come while there's time. Because there's going to come a day when you will not be able to put your faith and trust in Christ. Today's the day. Repent. Say, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I've thought bad things. I've said bad things. I've done bad things. And my penalty, what I deserve, is death. But I see there's one who paid the price for me. His name is Jesus. And I want to put my trust in His sacrifice and ask Him to be my Savior and my Lord. I repent. I place my faith in Him. Forsaking all, I trust him. That's what faith is. I can't save myself. God requires perfection. Is there anybody perfect here? No. In fact, Peter says that uh, in verse 15. You're to be holy as he's holy. That's what he's commanded us. Verse 16. Well, none of us can do that. But there's one who can change that for us. And the Holy Spirit sets us apart for that redemption. Why? So that we will obey and be sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. The Father selects, the Spirit sets apart, and Jesus is the one who saves us and sprinkles us with His blood so that we can be saved. Now notice what he says here as he concludes this. All three persons are playing a role in your redemption, in my redemption. And so we celebrate that this morning. We are cleansed by the Son. As we obey Him, obey the gospel, the blood of Christ is sprinkled on us. When you read in the Old Testament, what's fascinating, and these pictures are then found all throughout Peter's epistle, When God chose his people and made that choice, he said, listen, Israel, you're going to be my people. Moses, he, he, he brought the, the requirements down and he read the requirements of the covenant that God had for him. And then he took a bull and he, he slaughtered that bull and they poured some of the blood on the altar. And then they took some of the blood and he sprinkled it on the people and he threw it on them. And he said, these are the requirements God has, has made for to be a part of his covenant people. You know the amazing thing? When he did that, he said to them, you are a peculiar people. You're a treasure to me. You're a chosen people, a a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're my own special people. And and the amazing thing is when he said that in the book of Exodus chapter 19, Peter says the same thing of the church that's now saved in chapter 2 verse 9. Those same adjectives and nouns that describe the, the covenant people of God in the Old Testament, Peter says that's who we are now as the church. And we've been sprinkled with blood. What blood? The blood of a lamb that was slain. And we are the covenant people. That's why when we celebrate this Lord's Supper, when we celebrate that and we eat the bread, we drink the cup, and Jesus says this cup is the blood of the new covenant written in my name, written in my blood. And that we're now the covenant people of God. We've been sprinkled in that way. Not only that, when when someone was was made a made was when someone sinned and they needed to be uh, cleansed what did they do they brought their sacrifice and they brought their sacrifice and the sacrifice was altered offered and as they did that, that that there was blood that had to be shed why did blood have to be shed well without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sin that's what the law required and, and so a, a, a bull or a goat or some pigeons were brought why why did they have to die? Well, the wages of sin is what? Death. Sin deserves death. But stop, really stop. Could a, could a bull, could a goat, could some little pigeons, could those really take the place of sinful man whose will rebels against God and says, I'm going to cross the boundary even though you say not to? Could that really be a sufficient sacrifice? No. They were temporary Coverings until one would come and have a perfect will and offer himself as the sacrifice for the sins of mankind. The one who John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away what? The sins of the elect people. No, I'm sorry. That's not what it says. He takes away the sins of the world. He paid the penalty. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the whole world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He's died for everyone, for all of their sins, once for all time, paid the sufficient penalty so that now anybody and everybody can call on Him. Whoever shall so call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why? Because He shed His blood. Peter says that. Look down in verse 17 through 19. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's works, conduct yourself through this time of your stay here in fear, knowing you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your uh, sinless or aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers. But we were saved how? We were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. You see, if you're saved, the blood of Christ has been sprinkled on us. The sacrifice has been praised. Praise God today, man. This is important because nothing else is needed. You're not working your way to heaven. I'm not working my way to heaven. Jesus has already accomplished all of that. Praise God. Man, what a relief. I don't have to go through life and navigate in life. Holding, well, I wonder if I'm holding on hard enough here. Am I going to make it? No. I'm held by His hands. Sealed by His Spirit. Secure in the Father's hands. No one plucks us out. Man, praise God. man. that will give you great relief. And guilt doesn't have to rule in your life anymore when you've put it under the blood of Christ. Praise the Lord. Not just that. Did you know that it wasn't just the covenant people that were sprinkled? It wasn't just sinners that were sprinkled? But do you know the priests that served the Lord? They were sprinkled as well. When you go and read about Aaron and his sons, as they were set apart for ministry as priests in the temple, Moses offered up a, a, an offering for them and poured half of the blood on the altar. And then he took some of the blood and he, and he took it and he rubbed it on Aaron's ear, right earlobe. And then he took some of the blood and he rubbed it on his right thumb. And, and then he took some of the blood and he rubbed it on his right big toe. And you say, why did he do all that? Why was the blood sprinkled on them? Well, you see, he sprinkled it on their ears so they would hear hear the will of God and do it. And and he sprinkled it on their hands so their work would be the work of the Lord. And and he sprinkled it on their feet so that they would walk in the ways of God because priests are to be an example, pastors are to be an example of faith fleshed out before the people. But it's no different. You say, well, that's good for you, preacher, because you're the one who serves in that role. Oh, no, guess what? Everyone that's part of that covenant community Everyone who's been chosen by God, guess what? You're part of the priesthood. That's in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 as well. Notice this. We are now a chosen generation. God's chosen us. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation, His own special people. That means, listen, if you've been born again, if you've been blood-bought by the blood of Christ That means this morning the Spirit of God dwells within you and you've been gifted to serve in the priesthood. That means God has a responsibility for everyone in this room this morning who's been bought by the blood of Christ. You have a responsibility as a priest to serve in this temple, which by the way Peter will talk about in 1 Peter chapter 2 that now we are living stones put one upon another to offer up sacrifices. The great sacrifice we offer is our own lives and we minister one into another and out there into this world to declare to them we once were in darkness but praise God we're now in light. We once weren't had received mercy but now we have received mercy. We once weren't the people of God but praise God we are now. And you know what that'll sound strange to them by the way. It will sound strange to them when you uh, are so confident that you know what you are a child of God. How can you be so sure of that? Oh, it's not based on my my words, it's based on his. <laughs> And what he said. It's not because of anything I've done. It's because of everything Jesus has done. And you can live your life with confidence because of the work of the Son. The work of the Father in choosing you before the foundation of the world. Go ahead and tell them that at work tomorrow. Yeah, man. Before there was even a world, God chose me. Dude, well, that sounds strange. Yeah, well, it's true. How do you know that? Is that your truth or someone else's truth? No, it's God's truth. Yeah, and it's true. Even if you don't like it. You see, you say these things... And in your life, if our life, my, your life, my life, because we've been sprinkled with our blood and and now we've been born again and we have new life and you choose to live in a way different than the world, that will seem strange to them. And it should, our life should be different because of our faith. And it's because of the work of the triune God, who He is and what He's done in our life. And we should live that way so much so that Peter will just tell us, listen, get ready to make a defense. Get ready to tell them about the hope that's within you. And why you have hope, listen, when it's all crumbling and falling apart, you know what Peter's already said, by the way, he says this later, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. By the way, it's not going to come through water, it's going to come through fire. And it's coming one day. And you need to be ready for it. There needs to be an assurance in your heart this morning that, you know what? I have dealt with my sin. I have judged myself as God judged me. And I realize this. I'm a sinner and I deserve the penalty of my sins, which is death. But I see Jesus who offered the sacrifice in my place. And I want to put my faith and trust in him. And if you've never done that, you can do that today. If the Spirit of God has convicted you and you're willing to obey the truth of the gospel, which says this, confess, Jesus is the Savior and the Lord and ask Him to be your Savior and Lord. The next step of obedience is to go through those waters and to be baptized and testify, Jesus died, was buried and rose again. I've died to myself and I now have newness of life in Christ. He's my Lord, my master, and I'm ready to serve Him. And in all those who have attached themselves to Jesus, He's their new head, the Lord of their life, they attach themselves to a local body of believers. It doesn't make sense to say, well, I'm attached to the head, but I'm not attached to a body. Every body has a head, and every head has a body. And if they don't have the other part, then it's dead. The local body of believers is the local church. You become a part of it, and you begin to minister within that community because you're gifted to minister there. You've been graced by God, and you embrace that opportunity to grace others. And all along the way, guess what? We're strangers, y'all. We're strangers in this land. And we should be living like it. Is your life, my life, distinct? Is it different? Does the world know? Do they know what you and I believe? Have we even communicated to them? To your teammates, to your classmates, to to your neighbors, to your co-workers. Do they understand who it is we believe in and what he has done for us? Here's the amazing thing. As we navigate life just like these pilgrims, we can know with assurance Our steps are secure each day as we walk one step closer to his throne. One step closer to all that he's prepared for us. One day we're going to see it and realize it. And what a day that will be.